Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to my favorite time of the week, a time I get to share with you. I'm so glad you're joining us on Coffee and Cases. Whether you're returning or new, welcome. If you've been with us over the past several weeks, you know that our show is much different now than it was at the beginning. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic and social distancing, Allison and I have not been able to record together for quite some time. We hate it. And I honestly didn't think that our society would change so drastically. I thought life would be back to normal by now, but here we are, still adjusting and still caught in a surreal time. So while we're being asked to keep our distance from others, to stay inside when possible, and to not gather in large groups, we ask that you bear with us as our podcast has changed just a little bit, and keep your fingers crossed that we're able to record together again soon. I don't know about the weather where you are, but it's supposed to be raining where I live today. Regardless, I'm going to try to make the best of it. I may read on my porch, that's screened in of course, for a bit or maybe cook an overly indulgent dinner. Do something for yourself today. As our normal world seems to slip further and further away, don't let yourself be caught up in the anxiety it brings. Go outside, bake some cookies, read a book, paint a picture. My challenge for you today is to do something just for yourself. Thank you for bearing with us and for understanding. We care about you. Stay together, united in human spirit, even if not physically. Stay safe. Now, on to this week's episode. I went back and forth on this week's topic quite a bit. I'm currently researching a listener suggestion from Daniel, so whoop whoop, shout out Daniel. And I tried desperately to get it finished, but I could tell I was rushing it. So I decided to hold off on that case until I could wrap it up and give it the full research it deserves. That landed me looking through the literal dozens and dozens and dozens of possible topics Allison and I have compiled. I usually have some sort of idea where I want to go or who I want to talk about each week. But this week, with work and doing some renovations around home, I felt empty. I scrolled to a random page on the list and decided the first case I clicked on would be it. This week's case. Lucky for you, sleuthhounds, I have fantastic luck. Take a step back in time. The year is 1959. Man has yet to walk on the moon, iPhones are a dream, and President Eisenhower has just made Hawaii a state. You come home to your $12,000 house after filling up your car for 25 cents a gallon. You can't believe inflation rates. Your wife is cooking dinner and singing along to some tune by Ella Fitzgerald, so you go into the living room to catch up on the newest episode of The Twilight Zone. You love that show. It's amazing the concepts those directors come up with. Mary wants to go see Sleeping Beauty this weekend. You complain because tickets went up to $1, but you'll know you'll give in and take her. You always do. Jimmy's going on and on in the background about the USSR crashing a spaceship on the moon. They're crazy, you think. No one will ever walk on the moon. You get him to be quiet when you agree to toss a baseball with him after dinner. Life is good. Your wife walks into the living room, her pregnant belly, making an appearance before she does to let you know dinner's ready. You shut off the TV and stumble over Mary's Betsy Wetsy as you make your way to the table. It's beef and corn casserole for dinner tonight, your favorite. You smile at the life you've made. 
Life wasn't so different for our victims today. This family of four also lived a nice life. They weren't wealthy, but they had what they needed. They were happy. They never would have thought their small town could be a place where someone awful lived. But sadly, their seemingly normal day took a dive into the twilight zone. This is the story of the Walker family. Welcome to Coffee and Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the cases will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, because, as we all know, conversation helps to keep the missing person in the public consciousness, helping keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. I know last week Allison talked to you about reaching out to us on social media through reviews or comments, and I want to take a second to thank you. Those new reviews we got on iTunes really lifted our spirits, as well as all the messages and comments we received on Facebook and Instagram. We really want to hear from you guys. Your voice, your opinion matters so much to us. We love when you comment on Apple Podcasts and on our Facebook page. It makes us feel like we're creating friendships all across the world. So we encourage you to keep reaching out to us. We're still taking suggestions for episodes, and we would love to know what you want to hear about. Because, after all, we want to make you happy. So please send us your requests. Let us know what you think of our episodes. Talk to us. In times like these, when we're being told to stay home, Allison and I are craving human interaction. Talk to us. Share your thoughts and your opinions. We can't wait to hear from you. So with that, let's get back to 1959. So a really funny thing happened to me earlier this week when I was talking to one of my really good friends from work. Um, she was, she and I were just texting back and forth. She's actually about to have a baby, and so we were kind of talking about um, all the excitement that that brings for her and her husband, and just different things with work. And she said that she was getting caught up on a podcast that they had fell behind a few weeks and she made the joke that she noticed we changed the batteries in our fire detector and I had no idea that the beeping from that was picked up. I guess it had been beeping for so long I had become immune to the beeping sound so I thought that was really funny um but again please just bear with me from well you know because I'm working from home um and you're gonna hear a lot of different chatter and background noise. I can hear my husband opening a bag of chips right now, so I'm sure you're going to pick up a lot of that in the background as things are just completely different. And the Red Cross has been flying over some today where I live. We live near a National Guard base, as I think I've mentioned before. So there's just a lot of noise happening, but that's okay. It makes it interesting. Gives us something to talk about each week. So like I said, I have been trying to talk to my work friends as much as possible because I know we're all going stir crazy being home and I really believe that everyone needs a work best friend. 
someone that you can count on for a good rant session, someone that will always join you for lunch, even though you're both supposed to be on a diet, and someone who can do things with you on the weekends. For me, one of those people is Allison. And for our victim today, Cliff, that person was Daniel. Daniel and Cliff worked together on Palmer Ranch in Osbury, Florida, and it was there that they became quick friends. You see, sleuthhounds, they had many shared interests. They were both working on the farm, they both liked to hunt, they were both into guns, so they shared a lot of the same interest. And it was Daniel who discovered the bodies of the Walker family who were brutally murdered back in December of 1959. To properly set the scene, let's go back to 1959. To December 19th, 1959, to be exact. Christmas was drawing near, and as a result, the Walker family, Dad Cliff, Mom Christine, three-year-old son Jimmy, and one-and-a-half-year-old daughter Debbie, were in town running some errands and, I assume, finishing up Christmas shopping. I don't know about you guys, but I love Christmas. I love to shop for people. I love to buy people gifts. It's a real problem. Anthony and I try every year to stick to a budget, and every year I go over because I just love to give people presents. I can remember one Christmas in particular that my mom and I were shopping in downtown where she lives, and it started snowing. And I'm not talking about, like, just a little flurry. I'm talking about the big, huge snows the Hallmark movie snows. We were shopping in downtown with all the locally owned shops that were all beautifully decorated with their Christmas displays in the window. The streets were lit up. It was like being in a movie. There's just something magical about that time of year. Now, I imagine Christmas shopping in Florida looks much different than Christmas shopping in Kentucky, but nonetheless, the Walker family was finishing up a few Christmas details. According to What Lies Beyond, December 19, 1959, the Walker family murders, Christine had just been 19 when she married Cliff, and five years later, she was a mother to two toddlers living in an isolated ranch house that was sparsely furnished. So I'm sure she got lonely at times and probably enjoyed going into town. After all, the ranch they lived on was over 100,000 acres, so I'm sure the company was sparse. The $222 per month that Cliff earned covered little beyond the basics. But Christine was expecting her mom home for Christmas, so she had to swing by the grocery store, and the family desperately needed a new family car. According to several articles I read, Christine had also picked up a red Christmas dress for baby Debbie in anticipation for her grandparents coming to see her at Christmas. Almost every single article that I read on this case talked about how beautiful Christine was. They said she was a beauty, catching the attention of almost every man in town. After any argument with her husband Cliff, she was often rumored to tell her friends that she could have picked any man in town, but she decided on Cliff. Despite the fact the family was barely making ends meet, and that Christine sometimes wondered what her life would have been like if she'd married someone else, the family was reportedly happy. After purchasing herself and the baby a new Christmas dress, the family headed to the local IGA. Now, sleuthhounds, this is super iconic for me. I didn't even know that IGA was a thing back in 1959, but hearing IGA brought back a flood of memories for me. So for our listeners who have literally no idea what I'm talking about, IGA is a small grocery store. 
and in the town I grew up in, it was one of the two places where you could buy food without having to drive 30 minutes to the closest city. IGA was my very first job, and let me tell you, it made me respect cashiers so much more. That work is hard and disgusting. I hate dealing with money. It makes me super nervous. I remember one time I messed up a transaction and accidentally gave a man more change than he needed because he like did the, like, do you need cash or whatever? And you can say yes and enter the amount. He did that and I accidentally gave him more money than he needed. Of course he said nothing and left with 20 more bucks than he should have. I remember going on break, calling my mom, literally sobbing from my car and quickly running to the bank to withdraw $20 to put in my drawer so it would come out correct at the end of the day. I also worked there during the summer, which if you work in a grocery store, know that is the most disgusting time to be a cashier because people will literally hand you dollar bills out of their bras. It's disgusting. But that one summer was enough for me because I just stayed a nervous wreck and I couldn't handle it. So after picking up some last minute items, the family left IGA and headed to Altman Chevrolet in Sarasota, where they test drove a Hudson Jet and looked at a green and white Chevy sedan. They even stopped to get Jimmy and Debbie lollipops. The same article I mentioned before, the What Lies Beyond article, said that Christine and Cliff visited Cliff's best friend Daniel and his wife before heading home. The men took their guns and went out for a short hunting trip, and then they were to load Cliff's Jeep with cattle feed for Cliff to take back home. Lucy and Christine, I'm sure, made small talk about Christmas dinner. They discussed the local town gossip, and Christine mentioned that they had just gotten a Christmas tree and that Cliff had already put it up in the living room, and the kids were so excited to get home and decorate the tree. Lucy handed Christine a Christmas card as she walked out the door. The family had driven separate cars, Cliff and the kids in the Jeep, and Christine in the car. Christine, I'm sure, not wanting the groceries to spoil, headed home ahead of Cliff, who was still busy with Daniel. Cliff left Daniel's house after making plans to go hog hunting with Daniel bright and early the next day. Daniel said that he would pick Cliff up at 5.30 sharp in the morning, so all was normal with the world. As promised, Daniel arrives at the Walker house at 5.30 a.m. sharp. Now, let me tell you, I'm not a morning person. I hate getting up early. I loathe it. If my day could just naturally start at 9.30 or 10, I would be a very happy person. But sadly, that's not the reality that we live in. The worst, though, is when you are not a morning person and you have morning bus duty. And I know my teachers out there, you feel me on this. You have to get up way earlier than normal. If you don't live close to school, you know you got that commute as well. Plus you're getting up early. You're exhausted by the end of the day. You're tired. You wanna go to bed early, but you're a night owl, so you can't. It's just not for me, but I suck it up for my however many weeks and get it done with, smile on my face. So I can't imagine the schedule of a rancher, but apparently that includes being up and ready to rock and roll at 5.30 in the morning, so that's not for me, but I am thankful that someone can do it. This also explains why when Daniel rolled into the Walker house and everything was dark, he got concerned. He expected to show up to lights on, a baby crying, bacon frying, and coffee brewing. Instead, he was met with a dark house, 
a Christmas tree and lights on the front porch and silence. It was that Christmas tree sitting on the front porch that triggered something for Daniel. Hadn't his wife just told him the night before that Christine had talked about the tree Cliff had put up in their living room, that it was ready for decorations? I'm sure he thought he was overreacting. Perhaps Lucy had just said that they'd bought a tree and that Cliff was going to put it up in the living room. Despite that, Daniel took in the rest of his surroundings. Both cars were in the front of the home, though the family car was parked in a really unusual way. Maybe Christine had been in a rush to get home. Maybe she thought the food was going bad, something like that. So if the cars were all there, the family must be home, right? According to an article called The Walker Family Murders, Daniel knocked loudly on the door, believing that maybe Cliff had just mistakenly slept in. But when he got no reply, he began to worry. I don't know about you sleuth hounds, but I would have reacted the exact same way, if not worse, than how Daniel reacted. One time a few summers ago, Anthony and I were headed to an amusement park about an hour from where we live. We'd let all of our dogs out to go to the bathroom before we left, and we have three dogs, which is way too many, but, you know, it's the life we live. Anthony had just showered and had just put on the clothes he was going to wear that day, and he went out the back door to let the dogs in, and I was in the bathroom putting on makeup. So, Roxy and Emma, two of our dogs, they come in, but Anthony and Boomer don't come in. Minutes passed, nothing. I kept waiting, nothing. I went outside and our fenced-in backyard was completely empty, gate still locked. I freaked. I ran inside thinking maybe Anthony had grabbed Boomer and walked him around front and that I just missed him when we were like, you know, coming in and out. But no one was in the house. I called my mom. I was 100% sure Anthony had been abducted. He was kidnapped. I was crying, hysterical. I was running in and out of the house, looking like a mad woman. I finally decided that I was going to drive through the subdivision just to see if I saw him after my mom had told me about 7,000 times that perhaps Boomer had gotten out of the fence. As I ran to the car, keys in hand, Anthony appeared at the top of the hill, towing Boomer over his shoulders. He had gotten out. I remember the relief and realized I had definitely overreacted. I'm sure that Daniel thought that he was also overreacting when the thought came to mind that maybe the gas that heated the home had poisoned the family in the night. According to What Lies Beyond, December 19, 1959, the Walker family murders, the back screen door was latched, so Daniel peered through the windows and was able to see a single dim light, and in that light, he saw someone was in there, but why was no one answering the door when he knocked? Realizing something was wrong, he used his pocket knife to cut a hole in the screen door and unlatch it. As he entered the kitchen, he switched on the light, and the first thing he saw was Christine Walker's bare feet. He rushed from the home, certain it was gas poisoning, and he headed into town. According to that same article, because Daniel had the trailer on the back of his truck because, you know, they were going hunting, he decided it would be best to take Cliff's Jeep, and as he approached the vehicle, he noticed the windows were down and the 22 rifle Cliff had used the day before was in the cab. There was also cattle feed stacked in the back, something that Cliff would have stored in the barn as soon as he got home. So it was then Daniel knew something was definitely up. He drove as quickly as he could and was finally able to contact the police because remember it's super early, so none of the stores were really open, but he is finally able to contact the police. 
the sight the police found was even more disturbing than they could have imagined. Gas poisoning was not the cause of death for Christine. Christine had been murdered, along with her husband and two children. From several articles I read, it appears that Christine arrived home around 4 p.m. on the 19th. Her car was believed to have been parked in a different place because the killer, or killers, were already at her home. Sleuthhounds. This leads me to think she knew the person who killed her. I mean, if I pulled into my driveway after visiting a friend and someone I didn't know was parked in my driveway, there's no way that I would get out of my car and go into my house with them. There was evidence at the crime scene that led police to think the same. Most of her groceries were put away, meaning that she didn't feel panicked or that she was in danger, so she took time to put all of her groceries up. She even placed a Christmas card from Lucy on top of her refrigerator. It's believed sometime relatively soon after she arrived home and started putting her things away, the attacker assaulted her. The police noted evidence of a struggle between Christine and her attacker. She was badly beaten, and one of her shoes was found bloodied on the porch as if someone had attempted to use it as a weapon. Many believe that Christine was able to escape from her killer briefly and used her shoe as a weapon, but was caught again on the porch. According to the article Unresolved Home Invasion, Murders of the Walker Family in 1959, inside the home, the 24-year-old mother was brutally raped and shot twice in her son's bedroom. The first shot was just a graze, but the second shot in the top of her head killed her. The killer then seemed to make some sort of effort to clean up using Jimmy's bedding to wipe up blood from Christine's legs before pulling her toward the living room. At some point, Cliff arrived home with the kids. Jimmy was probably happily licking his lollipop as they pulled into the driveway, thinking it was just a normal day at home. I think, and you all let me know what you believe, but I think that Cliff was mad or even scared when he saw that unknown person's car at the front of their house. I think he rushed in, hence the reason he left the gun and the feed in his car. As Cliff rushed in the door, he was met with a gun to the face. He was quickly killed, shot between the nose and the eye in front of his kids. Three-year-old Jimmy, who had been eating his lollipop, was shot three times in the head. Blood smears on the floor indicated the first shot to the right cheek didn't kill the toddler, and he'd managed to crawl over to his dad before his killer placed two more bullets in his head at close range. According to Unresolved Home Invasion, the baby of the family was next. Evidence showed that she'd probably crawled over to her mother and had been shot in the top of the head next to her mom. The killer, not satisfied he'd caused enough pain and unable to shoot the baby again, took the bleeding baby to the bathroom, plugged the drain with a sock, filled the tub with about four inches of water, and held the one-and-a-half-year-old in the water until he was satisfied she was dead. Then the killer just walked out without a care in the world, without a glance back, taking only Christine and Cliff's marriage license, Cliff's pocket knife, and Christine's majorette uniform. At the time, police questioned hundreds of suspects and gave dozens of polygraph tests, but they never made an arrest. So, sleuthhounds, let's take just a minute and go over some of the people that were on that suspect list. 
Simply because he discovered the bodies, Daniel was named and interviewed as a suspect. This enraged him, and I actually read several articles where he was like cussing about giving me the poly or giving him the dang polygraph test and all of this. So he quickly agreed to take a polygraph test and was quickly cleared. According to the What Lies Beyond article, Christine may have had a lover named Curtis McCall, who was going to be the first, like, real suspect that we talk about. This article quotes McCall's cousin as saying, quote, for a fact that Curtis and Christine were having an affair, end quote. He even told the sheriff that two weeks before the murders, Christine had showed up at his mom's house looking for Curtis when her husband was at the rodeo. Although McCall had a history of fighting and violent outbursts and owned a gun that was believed to have been used or, you know, the same type of gun to kill the Walker family, when questioned by the sheriff, he denied ever dating Christine Walker before or after her marriage and claimed that he'd sold his handgun but couldn't remember to who he had sold it to. During three polygraph examinations, McCall was so nervous all three tests were deemed inconclusive. Suspicious. Another promising suspect is Wilbur Tooker, a 65-year-old retired railroad worker who lived approximately one mile from the Walker home, which, crazy enough, and if you can believe it, was their closest neighbor, which is super weird to picture now when most of us live in subdivisions. That same Hot Lies Beyond article says that Christine's mother told investigators her daughter dreaded Tooker's visits and had once confided to her sister that the only way to stop the dirty old man was, quote, with a bullet. Apparently, the man... See, I just hit a bag on my bed and you heard that sound, but, you know, that's fine. Apparently, the man had attempted to kiss Christine and propositioned her more than once. This prompted Cliff to threaten to kill Tooker and warn him that if he ever came to their house again, he would be sorry. But the old guy had an airtight alibi for that afternoon, the evening of the 19th, and was dismissed as a possible suspect. This case has some recent activity in regards to suspects that I'm going to tell you about. According to Inco Blood, the brutal 1959 murder of the Walker family... In 2010, over 50 years after the crime, the Sarasota County Sheriff's Office took another crack at the Walker family murder case. Authorities acted on a lead that connected the 1959 murder of the Walker family with an earlier and much more famous crime, the slaying of the Clutter family. Both were quadruple homicides. In both cases, both parents died, two kids died, so there was a lot of similarities between the two. After killing the Clutter family, the two murders, Hickok and Smith, fled to Florida in a stolen car, where they bought some items in a department store in Sarasota, just a few miles away from the Walker home on the very day that the Walkers were killed, so on the 19th. Even more strange, according to the Sheriff's Department, the Walkers, we know, have been buying or looking into buying a new car, that was the exact model that these two murderers had stolen. So this might have been how the two men gained access to the Walker home, like on the pretense of selling the car. So maybe they met them in Sarasota and they said, you know, like, we'll come out to your home and you can buy the car or whatever. And maybe that's why Christine was okay with letting them into their house. 
But I'm still hanging on the fact that Christine had to know the people who killed her. But I'm not a professional. And clearly the professionals felt otherwise because in December of 2012, the Sarasota County Sheriff's Department requested a court order to exhume the bodies of Hickok and Smith in order to run DNA tests in an attempt to connect them to the Walker family murders. But, sadly, a lot of time has passed, and with that time, the bodies were too heavily decayed, the DNA was tampered with, and they got inconclusive results. The men were buried again, and this theory is now buried with the dozens of others, and is considered hypothetical. I'm going to leave you with one final tidbit that I found strange. Apparently, the sheriff's office received a call from a 35-year-old woman about the murders in August of 1994. The woman, who wouldn't give her name, called the Sarasota County Sheriff's Office and indicated that she was a bartender in Pennsylvania. She claimed that she had a regular customer that would come into the bar, and one night they began talking, and he burst into tears. When she finally calmed him down enough to figure out why he was crying, the man admitted that he had, quote, killed some people in Osprey, Florida, end quote, when he was younger. The caller identified the customer as a man in his 60s, and she said she believed him to be a gun buff who worked odd jobs around town. She also claimed that during the conversation, the customer mentioned the name Walker. The lady promised to call again with any additional information. And so I got this information from that What Lies Beyond article. But even though she promised to call again, she never did. And so sadly, Sleuth Hounds, this case remains unsolved to this day. I think about the small town I grew up in. Two grocery stores, two banks, a post office, a library, and a gas station. Had something like this happened in my small town, the community would have been shocked. I come from a place that people call out to you in the store parking lot because we all know everyone. I come from a place where you run into old classmates when you take a jog at the community park, where church pews are filled with the same people who were there the day you were born. I'm sure Osprey was the same, and I know the shock of a quadruple homicide rocked their small town. Stuff like this doesn't happen in a town like that. We move to small towns to be safe, to escape danger, to find that safety we crave. Sadly, for the Walker family, their small town was anything but safe. Their safety was violated. Today, sleuth hounds, just like every week, you're asked to think back. If you were in the area of the time, did you hear anything? Did you see anything? Did you witness anything that could help find peace for this community? Sometimes, and we've seen it proven over and over again, sometimes, sleuth hounds, the smallest, the tiniest detail is enough to turn a case around, even one from 1959. Again, please like and join our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Twitter at Cases Coffee, on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast, 
Or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll We'll see see you next week. week.